Oh my God, she's going to freak out. She's going to freak out. And you know what? I had one job. My one job was not to stress her out. And I just did it. Like, she's going to lose her mind. I just ruined her baby. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, Ophira Eisenberg. Ophira is a comedian who hosted NPR's trivia show Ask Me Another for nine years and now hosts the new comedy podcast Parenting is a Joke. First, Ophira will share a hilarious and revealing personal story that we recorded live at Littlefield in Brooklyn. Then we'll chat about growing up in Canada, her family's grocery store, and the bagel order she will take to the grave. Here's Ophira. I'm the youngest of six, the baby, the baby, and uh, yeah, few of you are, okay, yeah, got it. So I don't know what your older brothers and sisters are like to you, but I will tell you that I was teased and tortured my entire life by these people. And it never ends. It does not matter how old I get, seriously. Still, this is their favorite thing to do. They see me and they do this. Nobody wanted you, you were a mistake. (laughs) That's fun for them, that is a good time. And I remember once I actually asked my mother about it, and uh, she said, don't be ridiculous, you all were mistakes, which, (laughs) she's kind of right on that one. So, you know, they would all say, my older brothers and sisters, that I was spoiled, I wouldn't agree with that, but I was definitely like the golden child as the baby in the case that I could do no wrong. I never did anything wrong in my parents' eyes. Now, the downside of that is that you're never not the baby. It doesn't matter how many mortgage payments I make, how many jars of anti-wrinkle cream I buy. I am the baby, like seen kind of infantile and irresponsible. So my mother now, quite a few years ago, had a heart attack and needed a pacemaker. And this was alarming to everybody in the family because my mother, you know, just epitomized to us strength and just ultimate capability. We felt like she could make a steel beam wither and bend just by looking at it. So the fact that she had any kind of health issue at all, like a heart attack especially, freaked us out. And after the pacemaker surgery, we were told that she would need six weeks at home of recovery where she couldn't do any housework, couldn't do really much, and needed for sure not to be put under any stress. So, you know, I waited for the call to find out when my shift was, and uh, nobody called me. So I called my brother, and I said, hey, I want to know when I'm coming to help mom. And he was like, oh, um, I mean, can you really take care of yourself? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And he goes, can you afford a plane ticket to come home? And I lied, yeah. And he was like, I don't know, maybe I'll ask mom. And I said, no, I am coming. I am coming, I'm gonna help mom. And he's like, fine, you can come the last Wednesday. And now I was enraged. I was enraged because I was like, this is what they all think of me. They don't even know me, these people. And now I was gonna prove to them with this one week at home with my mother in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, that I was a responsible adult, that I was, I was a real person, this family, and I could also take care of my mother, okay? So I came home. 
flew into Calgary, came into the door, saw my mother. She looked smaller than I remembered. And I gave her a hug and she said, uh, you know, not too hard, it hurts from the operation. Now taking care of my mother is no small feat. Everything in her entire life is done to precise excellence. The house is immaculate. You know how those carpets where if you walk, the footprints show because the carpet goes one way and she had those carpets? She would follow behind us with the vacuum cleaner, like basically erasing our presence. <laughs> Everything had to be clean. Laundry had to be done immediately. She didn't like it in the dryer. She thought the dryer smelled. Everything had to be hung out outside on the line to dry. Even in the winter of Calgary where you would bring in jeans that were basically frozen straight and just hit them over the chair. And of course, every meal was made from scratch. I remember when I moved away to uh, go to university and she called me at one moment to find out how I was doing. She said, are you making dinner? And I said, yeah. And she said this, oh, are you opening a can? Like that was the <laughs> deepest form of an insult. So there I was to take care of her, and there was a lot going on, and she wanted dinner. Now, dinner in my mother's world was pretty, pretty big, and it was all from scratch. As I mentioned, there would be an entree and a vegetable, but every meal started with homemade soup and a salad, and the salad that was always being served in our house was a chopped salad of tomatoes, cucumbers, little bit of parsley, onion, and then olive oil and a lemon. That was every single meal. So I couldn't make a homemade soup, but because it's my mother, she had pre-done ones that she had already made waiting in the freezer. But I put together the meal, I made the chopped salad, which if you've ever made a chopped salad before, you know, clear five days, that takes forever. <laughs> and a little chicken with some za'atar spice I found and some rice. And she just sat there beside me on the kitchen chair, criticizing me the entire time. You know, just these sort of light passive ones like, oh, you're gonna use that pot? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Don't you think you've made the chunks a little too big? I mean, whatever you think. <laughs> I don't know if I would put the stove on that high. And it was a lot, it was a lot coming at me, but I also knew she was just so frustrated that she couldn't do it herself. And I served her this meal, and she, with some skepticism, took a bite and chewed it, and then looked at me, and then just went, oh, look at this! My little baby made her sick mother a meal. Can you believe it? And I gotta tell you, I just basked in her approval, basked. <laughs> and I went to bed feeling pretty good. You know, I was doing this. I was contributing, I was taking care of my mother, I was making things better. And the next morning I got up and made her breakfast to her liking. And then I thought, you know, since I'm conquering everything, why don't I take a little break? And I thought I'd go to the gym and work out. Every time I travel, I pack gym clothes, but this would be the first time I would use them. And I asked her to borrow her car because the gym was like three miles away. My mother had a newish car. It was like five years old, but it was new to her because she'd bought it kind of as a present to herself when all the kids got out of the house. It was just a Toyota SUV, the silver car, but she called it her baby. And I said, can I borrow the car? She said, sure, and gave me the keys with some hesitation and just said, don't be too long. 
And I got in the car in the little garage and I started the car and I was just thinking about, you know, how great I was doing, really. I was thinking about how awesome I was doing as a daughter, how I was really pulling my weight and I'm backing out of the garage just congratulating myself as I hear like this crunching, this crunching like I'm driving over a water bottle, but it's a little bit more metally, like just metal crunching. And so I stop to look around and I realize in horror that I have just backed up too close to the side of the garage and I have ripped off the driver's side mirror. And I'm like shaking and so my first thought is to put it into drive and move forward, you know, to reverse time. And (laughs) when that doesn't do anything, I'm like, fuck, fuck, oh my God, she's gonna freak out, she's gonna freak out. And you know what? I had one job. My one job was not to stress her out and I just, I just did it. Like she's gonna lose her mind. I just ruined her baby and I didn't know where to go or what to do and I wasn't ready to make a real statement about the situation so I just put it back into reverse, left the garage and I drove to the gym. I got to the gym parking lot and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go over to the drugstore, I'm gonna buy some glue and silver nail polish, I'm gonna fix this, I'm gonna glue it together, I mean, I'm gonna hide it and who knows when she'll find out. But then I looked at it when I got out of the car, no, 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 this is no job I could do with some crazy glue and a little metallic nail polish. The thing was completely ripped off, just hanging by the wires that controlled it. There was paint chipped everywhere, there was scratches down the side. And I thought, okay, you know what? I cannot tell her the truth because she's going to freak out. And, you know, when you're the youngest of six and the only thing you have going for you, your whole status is that you're innocent and have done nothing wrong. You got to hang on to that. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to tell her I went to the gym and then I came out and this happened. Must have been a hit and run. And I thought, no, 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 no. I'm going to say I went to the gym, came out. I saw it happening. Stop the guy. And I'll take some money out of my bank account and I'll say he gave me $300 cash to deal with it because he doesn't have insurance. And I'm like concocting these long stories and some of them sound familiar to me. And I'm like, why does this sound so familiar? And then I realize it's because I've used them before. It's because when I was learning to drive at 17 and 18, I had used some of these stories when I had borrowed her car and had inflicted other little bumps and scrapes on them. And I'm like, well, I can't do it again. That's ridiculous. And I'm trying to think of a new path out. And I realized the only way out is to tell her the truth. Let's hope that pacemaker kicks in. <laughs> so I drove home and I was rehearsing this speech to say to my mother to hopefully not stress her out so much, a very calming thing about how it was all gonna be okay. And I I parked the car in front of the house rather than in the garage. And I came into the front door and my mother was sitting there and she looked at me and went, what's wrong? And instead of starting my speech, I just went, I did a bad thing and started crying. And she sat me down and calmed me down and said, what happened? And I told her that I was like, I'm backing out of the thing and I didn't really look and I guess the side mirror came up. And I could just see her nodding with some disappointment, looking at me like I was just this little girl that still had a lot of growing up to do. But I looked up at her and thought, she has no idea that this is one of the most mature adult moments of my life telling the truth to her. 
We called around to different auto body places and found one that could replace the mirror fairly quickly. It would be $500 with the insurance. We agreed to split it. And three days later, we drove it back with it all fixed. And as we were driving back, I was just apologizing to my mother. I'm so sorry. I, I'm glad it's all fixed. I'm, I'm just so sorry. I can't believe I did this. I didn't want to stress you out. And she said, that's okay. I understand. It happens. It was an accident. And then she looked at me and said, but we can never tell your older brother. Because <laughs> he will never let you live it down. You know, even when I was trying to take care of my mom, she always ended up taking care of me. Thank you. Hi, Ophira. Hello. Thank you so much for sharing your very funny and poignant story. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. Well, I loved that your story was about your mom. Remind me of her first name. Astrid. Astrid. She kind of sounds like a force. Definitely a force. Definitely strong character, soft heart. But, you know, this is someone who was a teenager during World War II. So my mother and father were the age of most of my friend's grandparents. Because you're the youngest? Because I'm the youngest. Yeah. And she had me at an advanced maternal age before <laughs> anyone was doing it. So trailblazer. So she saw a lot of things and really <laughs> did not have an easy life for many years. And then lived in Israel technically before it was Israel. Wow. They were very poor. And so basically there was a lot of wars happening at that point too. So by the time she came to Canada, she was definitely much more relaxed. But she was not one to be very pragmatic, very systematic, not a dreamy person. But she liked having fun. So you kind of got that from her. Definitely. I mean, she always wanted a career for sure. But that was not how the world worked. So she definitely told us, make sure you have a career. I always wanted a career. But instead, the world that we lived in in her house was very much her career. And she was skilled at everything. I mean, we're talking about making food from scratch here, but my mother could paint and she could fix things and she could sew. She sewed all my clothes up until I was in junior high. So yeah, she was accomplished. Uh, I'll say. That's so interesting because sometimes what we talk about on this show is like, what is this stereotype or thinking around a quote unquote Jewish mother? And then I think we all kind of know what that means in a way. So I'm just very curious when you hear the phrase Jewish mother, what does that mean to you? It's so funny because I think the definition of it that is what I would call the stereotype or generalization is not something I relate to at all. Just because I think there's this idea of people are like, oh, I, I talked to my mother four times a day. And that was definitely not my experience. However, the sort of other aspect of like, you look cold, put on a sweater. The nagging, should the we nagging, say? The <laughs> nagging, the nagging, but also this idea that this person like understands your physiology from afar. And also the caretaking and the expression of love through food. And I think that's also, that is a symbol of the home. Like what makes the home is where these other things are placed. 
So where do you think you fall on like the Jewish mother spectrum? Don't know yet, but I will say that we sit down at a table for meals. I mean, I work at night, so sometimes it's hard to make all dinners happen. But if I'm home, we make meals. We sit down for meals together, definitely over seven times a week. So the idea of sitting at a table together, that was every single day of my life and a real huge part of my upbringing. Once a month, all of the family came to our dining room, which sat 20. She would cook for days. And that was our socializing. That was our family time. And it happened all the time growing up. Wow. That's such a beautiful way to grow up, I think. I am so grateful and thankful for my childhood. And we had tons of friends and we had family and other things. But I think this idea of really having this big open door and having so many people all the time, but obviously being one of six. Right. Contributed to that. That happened naturally. Exactly. Well, I love that you kind of took some of what Astra did and made it into your own life in your own way. Yeah. And I think we all do that. All my brothers and sisters with their family were very much like we sit down for meals together. And I know that's not everybody. No, definitely not. But I really want to talk more a little bit about your childhood in Canada. In terms of like Jewish communities in Canada, a lot of people think of like Montreal or Toronto. And I know you're from Calgary. So tell me a little bit more like about that and what holidays or what these family meals were like, you know, even more growing up. Calgary has a very decent-sized Jewish community now. I think population-wise, when I was a kid to now, I believe it's doubled and maybe a little bit more, which is incredible growth in a small amount of time. So when my parents moved there from Israel, so then uh, my mother was sick of wars. This was like in the 50s. She really had her heart set on Canada as a place. And so she said, I want to move to Canada. I hear this is a very peaceful place. So they got on a boat, another boat, and they came to St. John's, Newfoundland. And then they heard about this new town, Calgary, over on the west that had all kinds of opportunity for people. And my father moved there, actually along with his two brothers eventually. And he was the first principal of the Hebrew school there. Wow. Okay. So he really made his mark. Yeah. Yeah. So he left the Hebrew school the year I was born. And the reason why is, I think the way I understand, I'm sure it was more complicated because I wasn't born yet. Because he fought in World War II and he did not have a full education, like on paper. So his Jewish education was something he kind of leaned into based on being in Israel. And he was extremely smart. So in the mid-70s, all of a sudden there was this situation with the Department of Education where they wanted to see everyone's diplomas on the wall, basically. Hmm. And my father was like, don't have one. And he felt, they felt, some combination of everyone, this was an issue. So he left. Hmm. Their loss. Yeah. He went back to it before he died, honestly. And I think that teaching was his true passion. Wow. Yeah. So at that point, he and his brother got into the grocery store business. So I grew up in a grocery store. Okay, this is my dream. (laughs) For anyone who knows me, I'm obsessed with grocery stores. Beyond obsessed. But anyway, was it like a large store? The first one was small, but it did have a bit of a corner store feel. And it did have some produce And it did have some meat and all kinds of soda and cigarettes and candy bars and all the rest. And the aisles were lined with anything you can imagine. So everything closed on Sunday in Calgary. Everything. 
But our store didn't because there was no reason to. And that store made bank every Sunday. Wow, because it was Jewish-owned. Yeah, and people depended on it. It was my world. I started working there. So a true family business. Yeah, we all worked there. We all worked there. So what kind of things would Astrid cook? What were her favorite dishes to make? Gefilte fish. I had no idea people didn't like gefilte fish. I also had no idea it was available in a can (laughs) or as a loaf. Because she made it in croquettes shape, and it was, for most people who know what the recipe is, or maybe right now they've just turned this off because they heard the words gefilte fish. Uh, But it's use a fatty fish and a lean fish, and her fatty fish was always salmon. And so they were delicious, and I have made it too. But even my husband, who grew up in a family that kind of would... New York source their gefilte fish from wherever. I'm telling you, he's had mine. He's like, this is better. I'm like, because it's supposed to be good. Of I course. don't know what happened it, here. It started out good. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a beautiful, fresh kind of fish meatball, which I enjoy. Yeah. So where did she learn that from? In Israel, she learned from cooking with my father's family. A lot of their neighbors were Arabs, too. So there was a lot of stuff that she liked from that cooking, too. So, I mean, growing up when there was a lot of us around, there would always be fresh hummus. I was always in charge of taking the skin off the chickpeas. Wow, that is a really labor-intensive step. Oh, it takes forever. So that was her method. It had to be that way. Yeah, and dried chickpeas, no cans. And then we had a food processor. We were very much a double the garlic on everything kind of recipe. I mentioned in the story chopped salad. So that was mainstay. At a point, she did a lot of baking, challahs for sure. I remember my husband, like many people, got into baking over the pandemic. And he was like, how do you braid a challah? And I was like, I... I did this, like, since I was three years old. But I guess if you don't know, you don't know. So is Hollis still something he makes? Yes. And then my mother made, I mean, this sounds kind of wild because this is part of her Dutch roots, I think, mixed. But every dinner had a homemade soup. Every single dinner. So matzo soup, of course, amazing, incredible. And she always claimed that the matzo soup recipe that's on your standard Manischewitz, it's missing an egg. You got to add an egg. And she said, most of the matzo ball recipes out there, that's the problem. That's why they're hard little soccer balls. They're missing an egg because it will make it much fluffier. And she'd always say, what ruins things is if you handle them too much. She knew. That's very advanced because that's like, I feel like what all the chefs say now is like, if you get the ingredients and you treat them simply, that should be the best. And it's sort of like an aspect of like, you're trying too hard. Right. Back it up. <laughs> Back it up. So fresh soup, also split pea, which now I see is very Jewish, split peas. But I did not know that growing up. But it was always part of it. And there was a lot of ham hocks floating around. So not particularly kosher. But also, I think because my mother was raised in the war and also when they lived in Israel, they were poor. So this idea of not using parts of an animal There was always like chicken's feet and pig's feet and different weird parts of cows floating around. But those were soup bases. You probably need to get used to kind of seeing the feet floating around. Yeah. I mean, it just never occurred to me. (laughs) And then when I went to Jerusalem for my nephew's bar mitzvah of sorts, I didn't realize until we were there that the way my mother had us eating breakfast for most of my childhood was the way most Israelis do because breakfast was not pancakes and eggs. 
It was a selection of breads, selection of cheeses, always salad for breakfast, sometimes fish. Yeah, I know. When I got to travel to Israel a few years ago, everyone was like, the breakfast is amazing. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then when we got there and I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah. I oh, was it's like, so great. I get it. I truly heaven. get it. It's heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and then just uh, the kind of spices that were always part of meals. Yeah. I mean, I would have friends come over and they would just be like, you're crazy, exotic food. <laughs> Hummus, no one knew what that was. Like tahina, all, all the time, tahina on the table, yeah. all the time. No one knew what that was. And were there ever moments where you felt like uncomfortable sharing your food or felt othered? In my own naivete, I feel like I only felt othered when I was told to feel othered. Mm. Like I was the only Jewish girl in class, but my best friend was the only Chinese girl in the class. And so when I went to her place for dinner, which was amazing, and yeah. I had no idea how amazing it was at the time because they cooked like primarily how they grew up. So it was just this insane, amazing spread of Chinese food. And then she would come to our house and basically eat Mediterranean fare. So then I didn't know that everybody wasn't doing something different. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Was there a moment when you went to a different, bigger city or New York and saw how there was a larger Jewish community. Like, how did that make you feel? So Montreal is a very specific place, too, because it's French, and that is, like, truly multicultural. And Toronto is truly multicultural. But I would say it wasn't until I moved to New York that I, for the first time, felt like, oh, my goodness, I look mainstream because it's so culturally Jewish here. Yes. I just had no idea. I mean, I have a little joke about it in my act where I say I was raised Jewish in Calgary, Alberta, or so I thought. Then I moved to New York. Maybe I was raised Protestant (laughs) because I had no idea what it was like to be in a culturally Jewish place where your Puerto Rican neighbor might know more about Judaism than you do because they were raised here. And does that make you feel like New York is your second home in a way? Does that make you have a connection with New York that's different? I think so. Yeah. I think it does. It's interesting. It's like that thing where you explain, explain, explain your entire life. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I know the least. Explain to me. And some of the ways that television projected back to me, Judaism did not ring true to me at all. And then I moved here and I thought, those families existed. Those places were real. I had no idea. Even something like Seinfeld. Just something as simple as that. Just the idea of those Diners, I just had no idea. I had no idea it was real. And again, Montreal had more of it, for sure. Toronto had more of it, for sure, but not like New York. Totally. I love that you had these two really disparate experiences that kind of came together. Yeah, it's wild. Okay. So you're a stand-up comic. You're a writer. You're a host. And you really put yourself out there. (laughs) Yeah. How do you put so much of yourself out there in such an honest way? That is such a flattering question. I think actually with storytelling, I think when it's done best, it's when you as the storyteller do allow yourself to be vulnerable or put out something that, you know, maybe isn't your proudest moment or maybe isn't like the most beautiful sketch of how you would like to be seen, but it's the truth. And that is usually what the audience relates to, hangs on to, 
feels a bond with. So it gets rewarded. And that's where really the humanity of why I feel like I do any performance yeah. or anything at all. It's that connection. And so then it, it encourages you to do it more. Well, yeah. You're inspiring to me. I mean, if everyone's life is just about everything working out, I think that's wonderful. But that is not my life. And I don't really want to talk to people where everything has worked out. A, because I don't believe it. And B, because it's boring. That's what Instagram is for. Well, thank you so much for putting so much of yourself out there. I'm going to think about how I can do a little more of that in the future. Oh, yeah. Take a risk. It will pay off. Okay. I'm going to try. One last question. Now that I know that you spent some time in Montreal, we need the assessment <laughs> of the Montreal bagel versus, versus the, New the New York, York bagel, bagel. And what would be your order in each? Okay, so here's the deal. When I lived in Montreal, I lived on Saint-Urbain, which was between the two bagel shops, Fairmount on one end, Saint-Viateur on the other, running steps in either direction. You pick yours. New York bagels are amazing. People don't like Montreal bagels because they say they are flatter, not as puffy. But I love it. But this is how it goes. They were open 24 hours. Montreal-style bagel from either Saint-Viateur or Fairmount on the sidewalk with nothing, fresh out of the oven at 3 a.m., nothing compares. Everything else is second. Maybe <laughs> one day we'll be eating that Montreal bagel on the street at 3 a.m. together. Hot in your hands. It's the best. Let's get there. <laughs> Ophira, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> That was Ophira Eisenberg. You can find Ophira on social at Ophira E. And while you're at it, give us a follow at Jewish Food Society. Looking for family recipes and stories from around the world? Check out jewishfoodsociety.org. And if you like what you heard, be a mensch and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Schmalti is produced by the Jewish Food Society in partnership with Pod People and made with love in NYC. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Special thanks to the team at Pod People. Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lesby, Robin Gelfenbein, Carter Wogan, and Michael Aquino. Ophira's story was recorded live at Littlefield, and our interview was recorded at Good Studio in Brooklyn. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Oh, you